Good morning. My name is Alexa Uda. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. I'm very happy to welcome you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival. We're very happy that you've decided to spend your Saturday with us and that you are here at 8.30 for our panel on Unlocking the Hispanic Vote. We've got a great set of panelists here to talk to you. Before I introduce them, just a couple of quick housekeeping things. We are going to be on here for about an hour. We're going to do 40 to 45 minutes of discussion on stage, then we'll open it up to Q&A. There are two mics on either side of the room. I'll give you the, the go-ahead when you can start lining up for there. Please have all your questions ready. We're very excited to, to give you an opportunity to ask them. Um, we, ask, we do not ask that you turn off your cell phones. We never will, but please put them on vibrate. And if you are going to tweet about this panel, the hashtag for the festival is TT. Let's get started. To my left, we have Juan Hernandez. He is one of the founders of the Hispanic Republicans of Texas group, which helps, uh, which helps Hispanic Republicans run for office here in the state. He is a longtime political advisor to many, many folks, including Senator McCain in his presidential race, Vicente Fox, and presidential candidates in Latin America. Thank you for being here. Next to him, we have Senator Rodney Ellis, who has dubbed himself the honorary Latino on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> senator Ellis is a state senator from Houston, where he was elected in 1990. He serves on the Transportation and Business and Commerce Committees. Before that, he served several terms on the Houston City Council. Next to him is Representative Jason Vialba. Representative Vialba is a Republican from Dallas, where he was first elected in 2012. He serves on the Business and Industry and Economic and Small Business Development Committees in the House. Next to him is State Representative Celia Israel. Celia Israel was elected here in Austin in 2014. I think she's had about four elections since then. <laughs> she, was, she won a special election to replace Mark Strama up in his, his previous district, now hers. She um, has a long history in Texas politics, formerly worked for uh, former Governor Ann Richards. And she currently serves on the Elections Committee. And last but certainly not least, we have Secretary of State Carlos Cascos. He is the current Secretary of State. He was one of Governor Abbott's first appointments when he was elected. He is a former Democrat from the Rio Grande Valley before um, switching parties to the Republican side, <laughs> where he was elected Cameron County Commissioner and later became the county judge before being appointed. Thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. And you know, we've done several iterations of this panel. Last year we did Latinos and the GOP leading into the 2014 gubernatorial elections. But this year we have a presidential coming up. We have a very, very crowded field. And on the Republican side, you know, if you asked me a year ago when we first started talking about this panel, if my first question would be about Donald Trump, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> but here we are. And so we have a very crowded Republican field in which the front runner is at the front of the field despite some of this rhetoric that we've heard of him calling, saying Mexico isn't sending its best to the US. They're rapists and drug dealers. Do the Republicans on this panel struggle and you know, how do you look ahead to an election in which you can gain more Hispanic support after dismal turnout in the last election for the Republican nominee? How do you reconcile those sort of statements with support for whoever ends up being the leader of your party? You're looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Pass it on. <laughs> Such a difficult question. And, and by the way, he's not only a, a of national interest, he's of international interest. And I've been several countries recently and people come up to me and say, oh, Juan, I hope you're not supporting Trump uh, because uh, it is insulting what, what he has said about Hispanics, what he has said about women, what he has said about my family members, my friends. Uh, um, but it's also uh, a phenomenon and an international one. We were talking about El Bronco a minute ago in, in Mexico. A, from out of nowhere appears a gentleman, different in many respects to, to a Trump, but very similar in that he's offensive, uh, he's a showman, and uh, El Bronco wins the governorship of the state of Nuevo León, some would argue the most powerful state in, in the nation of Mexico, the, the most educated state, the, the state with the most uh, finances, uh, and Bronco beats both the PAN and the PRI parties. For the first time in the history of Mexico, there is an independent governor. Uh, 
people. It happened also in Costa Rica last year. It also happened in, in Panama, Outsiders won. This year, we have a comedian winning in Guatemala, uh, Jimmy Morales. Um, people are tired of politics as usual. And in this nation, Republicans and Democrats, uh, I must say, if you look at uh, some of the research, they love that there is a Trump guy out there uh, swearing, uh, uh, kicking everybody, and, and making things, um, moving things around. But if you also look at the research and do not ask who would you vote for or do you like Trump, et cetera, but show what Trump stands for, what he believes in, and Americans are horrified. Oh, I wouldn't vote for anyone like that if you don't put a, a name to it. So the good thing is that though we tend usually to vote uh, with our emotions uh, and not with our minds, that's, that's also international, um, in this case, we have a, a year, more than a year, for his ideas to, to come forth. And uh, I think that we will uh, be missing him uh, on, on panels very soon. <laughs> Alexa, I will say that if um, there, is a, there is a cultural connection that I will remind everyone of. And when, any, when all, any of us were growing up or whenever any of our kids have a birthday party, you buy a piñata. And you're going you're gonna to beat up on that piñata. And it's a celebration, right? It's a family gathering. The hot selling item in Austin right now is a Donald Trump piñata. So I, um, that's, a, that's, that's an indicator. <laughs> that's an indicator. And as a Democrat, Donald Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Look, uh, Donald Trump gives voice to the frustration that exists in the party today. I think the people that are following him, the people that are most enthusiastic about him, are those that Juan mentions are just disenfranchised from the current political system. And so he's one of these outsiders that we can attach ourselves to. That being said, his policies are just offensive. Uh, they're deeply troubling, too. I think any Republican that's thoughtful about these issues, as a Latino, as a Hispanic, I'm hearing some of these commentaries and am just horrified that someone who has risen to this level in our party, who is this close to being the nominee, has even said those things, uttered those things. I think that's very troubling. I think most Republicans, uh, will have their summer affairs and their summer flings with candidates while we are enjoying the, the process and the entertainment of politics. But I think as we go into the fall and as we go into the spring and we really begin to discern who our next presidential nominee will be, I think at that point we begin to winnow away the carnival barkers of the, of the Republican Party. If you look at his, his history, what we did last uh, election cycle, we had people like Michelle Bachman and Herman Cain uh, all had their moment in the sun. And it's fun, it's interesting, it's entertainment. We love that. But in the end, we, we nominate a somber, uh, solemn individual who ultimately did not achieve what we would hoped, but at least the American people came together, the American Republican Party electorate came together and said, we need a serious-minded individual to be the next president of the United States. Also, I would mention that Trump is not a Republican. If you look at the issues that he cares about and the things that he has espoused, Amen. Uh, he is clearly not uh, a Republican. He's certainly not a conservative. Uh, and people that have begun to gravitate towards him because he's a, you know, a conservative, they just don't look at his record. This is a man who's agreed or wanted to continue the funding for Planned Parenthood. He has supported single-payer, universal Obamacare-style government or health care. He has been a person who just went on the news this week and said that George W. Bush is the reason we had 9/11, even though he's only been there for two, he'd only been there for two months when that occurred. These are not orthodoxy positions, uh, orthodox positions in the Republican Party, and for someone to espouse those positions and yet still maintain a pretty good sizable portion of the early polling uh, suggests that we're flirting right now. Uh, we're not serious yet, and once we get serious and sober. Uh, after the, the, the summer of Trump, I think then you'll begin to see uh, Republicans go that direction, away from him towards somebody else. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, he, he is running in a Republican primary, but, you know, is there a silver lining to what you all have described as flirting with Trump? You know, does it put more pressure on candidates on both sides to really step up and defend Hispanic voters and try to energize them? Is this something that's going to resonate? Will the candidate at the end be able to cut through the noise? And will it put more pressure? And in the end, does it benefit voters? I think it provides a real alternative uh, for people like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, and even Senator Cruz, to be that 
other, right? I think Senator Cruz is banking on the fact that Trump will ultimately implode and the people that are, are thinking will gravitate towards him. But I think people like Marco Rubio, who are, who are articulate, fresh, new voices in the party and who are also uh, Latino. I mean, he's Cubano, but he's still you know, brown-skinned and one of us. And so I think that will begin to resonate with people who are saying, look, we've got to broaden this tent. We've got to be better about reaching Hispanics. I mean, we saw those numbers in the last presidential <coughs> cycle when Romney got 32% of the Hispanic vote nationwide. That's not going to cut it. Uh, George W. Bush, when he ran, was in the 40s, right? So we've got to get back up in the 40s if we ever expect to have a chance again. And I think the only uh, candidates that can do that are those that are more thoughtful, open-minded about some of these issues. I'm not saying to abandon our conservative principles and be open borders amnesty, but I am saying that we have to be much more thoughtful and engaged on this particular issue in order to attract uh, the electorate that we're seeking to attract, which is critically important for us to be victorious in the, in the, in the fall of next year. Well, I want to talk, our panel is called Unlocking the Hispanic Vote, and we know that Texas voters in general, but Hispanics in particular, do not turn out in the numbers that they represent in, this in the state. And I want to go back to last night during our opening one-on-one -on -one with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And you know, he was asked about voting in Texas. You're making this easy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the lieutenant governor said that he doesn't think Texas needs to make it easier to vote. I'm going to quote him. He said, if people don't show up and vote, they're either happy or they don't care. Is there anyone on this panel that agrees to that approach when it comes to getting more Hispanic voters out? Let me interject real quick. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, good morning. Um, no, I, 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 I don't think that that, that should be the, uh, the premise. Uh, what we've done, at least in my office, we've started to do, we, we've been reaching out to, uh, to campuses. And uh, there's, there's a generational gap in voting right now. And, and you, have, you have a lot of first-time voters that, that are very cynical. Uh, they don't trust. And that seems to be the, the word that, that I'm getting, not just from Hispanics, everybody across the board. Uh, and I think to try to focus on, on how we're going to get the Hispanic vote uh, is, is, is somewhat that, that I think it's somewhat disingenuous. I think that my role as Secretary of State is to get everybody's vote out, regardless, okay? Uh, but, but I think that, and, and it's so great being nonpartisan now, and I just sit back and, and, and watch the, the carnival atmosphere. But, you know, I think if you go back to, to, uh, to, to, to Mr. Trump, um, you know, I, I, I agree with, with the panel. He's not a Republican, you know, he's an independent. He may be a Trumpican, I don't know. Uh, but, but, but I think he, you know, what, what, what's somewhat concerning, uh, obviously, aside from the, from the negativity and the rhetoric, is, is the fact that there's, there's actually a following out there. There's that, you know, that his message is resonating. Now with whom, you know, I, I think it's, I, I look at, like most of y'all when you're watching him, I, I look at who's in the background. And who's there? I mean, I look whether you know the the, the ethnicity of, of the background, and and it's predominantly what what I can see is why you know Anglo-Saxon Protestant type. You know, every once in a while you, you will see a you know an African American, an Asian American, an Hispanic. Uh, but I think that the concern is is here at least at least in Texas. You know, and let me let me kind of deviate a little bit. Everybody talks about the Hispanic population and, and the proliferation of Hispanics and how it's growing. And then you have a, you know, an, an Asian constituency as well that, that's also growing. And as I'm speaking to, to, to you know, first-time voters, whether it's at you know, TCU or Mary Hardin Baylor or, or you know, ACC, whatever it is, you know, the growth in the Hispanic population really is, is and I hate to say this, but it's true, it, it's somewhat meaningless if we cannot generate and, and, and excite and engage people uh, to go out and vote. It doesn't matter how fast you know, any particular segment is growing uh, if we don't exercise that right to vote. Uh, but the, the message that came across from the college campuses is that of trust. They don't trust elected officials. And then there's a reason for that. And it's kind of, it's kind of ironic that if you, if, you, if you poll Congress as a body, uh, the poll numbers are very, very low, right? I mean, the, the, the unfavorables are high, favorables are low, but then when you go to any particular congressional district and you poll their, that particular congressperson, their numbers are much higher. So there's something that's just not resonating. So I've got people that I'm trying to convince to go out and vote. So, well, we are not going to vote for the lesser of two evils. Well, then go out and vote and cast a blank ballot. Get that number registered because, you know, 
All votes do matter, regardless of where we are. But as far as reaching out to the Hispanic population, the Asian Americans, the African Americans, it's incumbent on everybody here, you know, to make sure that, that those votes get out. Alex, I'd like to speak as, as um, the only member on this panel who has actually had the ability to do something about the fact that we weren't voting well. One of the ways that we can do that is to change the law. So I, I was disappointed to hear Dan Patrick's uh, comments because I, I worked very, very hard to pass online voter registration, House Bill 76. It got a very late hearing, despite having support from senior Republicans uh, on the floor. Um, 76 co-authors and a very late hearing. Um, and then the hearing turned into a, a, a partisan attack to suggest that you, if, if you pass this bill, you're, you're, our, my Republican colleagues would be in danger. My, my suggestion is that Texas is already in grave danger because only 34% of us bothered to vote last year. That should be a cause for alarm and concern to say, what can we do? Can we do same-day registration? Can we do online voter registration? There's other dynamics where white people aren't voting, but there's mechanical things that are within our control, and I ran head first against what turned out to be a cement wall, but I will do it time and time again because we have to value the vote and we have to do better than 34 stinking percent. Yeah. I, I respectfully and very strongly disagree uh, with the Lieutenant Governor's comment. I, I think there's a tendency for us to forget how we got here. Initially in this country, you had to be free, you had to be white, you had to be male, and you had to own property uh, in order to vote. And it took a while before people realized something was wrong with that. <laughs> You know, I mean, but for a while in the beginning of our sure. great democracy, people figured that was okay. Well, one day I'll get some property. You know, maybe one day, maybe I won't make it, but you, you might be white. Uh, it took a while to get beyond that. I think there's a tendency uh, for people in government to look at life through their prism, where they are. And if you won in a low turnout election, or if you won in a high turnout election, you tend to be for or against those kinds of elections. Look, we ought to change the way we've been doing stuff. Uh, I happened to, to be the author of the motor voter law. It was really an accident. Gene Green uh, put the bill in. He'd never get a hearing. It was a Democratic legislature back then in 1981. In the middle of the night, I added his bill on as an amendment to a sunset bill to transportation bill. I think, Mr. Secretary, as a result of that bill, I've registered more Republicans than anybody else in the history of Texas. <laughs> uh, but back then, Republicans were against it. I think the Lieutenant Governor was responding with a knee-jerk reaction to a question about California's new system of automatic registration. You know, it's easy when you're in Texas. California did, oh, I'm against it. <laughs> I hope we'll take a deep breath and sit back and think about it. I gave you an article when we were in the lounge earlier in the 1960s. The Hispanic vote, the sleeping giant, I think was a reference. This is 1965, 66. Ralph Yarbrough and the Catholic Church led a march to increase the minimum wage, which was, which was a dollar and a quarter. Uh, and the vote didn't come out. Black vote didn't either, might I add. We had a few pieces of legislation help. We ought to change the dynamic, the dynamic and not keep doing stuff the way we've always done it. Everybody's spending all of this money, the limited resources we have, to try and register people to vote. You don't get enough, and then you're broke when it's time to get them to come out to vote. Uh, you know, I think we ought to change it. We ought to look at what Oregon and California did. We ought to look at online registration. We ought to look at same-day registration. Technology lets us eliminate issues related to fraud. And we ought to use technology to do that, but we ought to not operate with the same mentality that our founding fathers operated under when this democracy was set up. If I could add um, that on the one hand, yes, we need to make it easier for people to vote in general. And I, I love the use of technology. I think we should be able to register the same day. I, I, I agree. Um, we also should make it attractive. One thing, that, though, that I don't agree, respectfully, and most of you may disagree, is that we put all of this blame on the voters. And since we Hispanics don't come out and vote, uh, how can we expect to, to change our nation? Um, when we created Hispanic Republicans of Texas, we decided, let's go for candidates. Let's find young people, and not young people, Hispanics, and invite them to run for office. 
yes, as Republicans, but especially run for office. If you want to run as Democrat, but Hispanics run for office. And uh, individuals like, like Jason Villalba that will represent us, that will go to the middle in, in many respects, but, but that will represent the community. If you find a good candidate, people come out and vote. So uh, I hope there's some that are thinking about running for office here. We need more people, good people, running for office, not staying home and just watching what's going on out there. And we need to uh, cultivate Hispanics that are, that are flirting a little bit with, with running for office, make sure they get some money, get an education, know what it means to, to, to run an office, and then you will get the numbers. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm sorry, but most of the candidates out there, they're, they're not that interesting to us as Hispanics. They don't offer anything for us. So yes, we should go out. We have that more responsibility, at least to vote for no one, but, but to vote, I, I agree. But we need to be like Israel over here, who set up her, her, her campaign in her living room, went and touched every single person, made it clear to them that she was interested in, in their lives and, and, and was able to win. Uh, but it's not just going to be by condemning Hispanics for not running for office or African-Americans. You get Obama and, and African-Americans come out in, in, in incredible numbers. You get a George W. Bush in the state of Texas and in historic numbers, they, they come out and vote for him as a Republican. And finally, we as Hispanics do tend, and, and uh, it is true that we tend to vote for the person. Um, much more <laughs> than the issues, unfortunately, and, but definitely much more than the party. I agree with Juan, I, I do, and I fall prey to that sometimes because you get so frustrated as a candidate, but what is, what is so rewarding as a Latina who knocked on so many doors, I, I was elected because it was a grassroots oriented campaign, right. and being able to connect with someone uh, at their front door, um, and whether it was an African American voter, and you could talk about their mom who was a teacher, or whether it was a Latino voter, and you could talk about, hey, we're both from El Paso, you make a connection, and they get to know this is just a woman who's at my door who has the humility to say she wants my vote. That, whether you're Republican or Democrat, is going to weigh much more heavily exactly. with any Latino voter. The, the polls, polls show that Latino voters are, are, are neither left or right. They really are up for grabs. Any of us who overlooks them, overlooks them at our peril. You know, the... Um I can pretty much, I think you mentioned, I used to be a Democrat and then a Republican, and, and uh, uh, I ran three times as a Democrat for county commissioner in, in Cameron County, three times uh, for county judge as a Republican in, in Cameron County, and, and I think, one, I think you kind of touched on it. You know, I, I think you're right. There, you know, it's up, it's up to the candidates uh, versus, you know, the SOS office or any whatever, you know, to, to generate that interest. And it is about the person. And, and I think part of it, and I think when, when you have a county like, like Cameron that is overwhelmingly Democrat, I mean, 65, 75% Democrat, uh, and, and I was able to win, you know, three times against some pretty strong Democrats. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, where the straight ticket vote in, in Cameron is two and a half times that of the Republican. So on election day, I'm, I'm down, you know, eight or nine, 10,000 votes. Uh, but, but I think it's important to, to recognize that it is about the candidate. And I, and I think for, in, you know, speaking nonpartisanly, I mean, there's a lot of good R's, a lot of good D's that have great ideas. Uh, both have not so great, great ideas. Neither party has a monopoly on good government. Neither party has a monopoly on great ideas or bad ideas. And I think that's the message I think that the church, when you're going, I did my door to door and I did my mm -hmm. standing on a street corner by myself, you know, with a sign, you know, to get that emphasis. But in order for, a, for, for any candidate to, to get that vote and engage, they've got to be able to connect. They've got to connect with, with the voter because everybody votes based on a personal impact or an issue, what's important to them personally. Uh, and that's what I have found. And if, if you can get that message to resonate, and to me, as, as SOS, you know what, my, my, my goal is, is not to, to get out the vote. That's not, I don't think that's, that's my role. I think the role of that is the candidate, the individual parties, you know, nonprofits, whomever it is. You know, our role is to provide information, educate voters as best we can, make it, you know, information that's readily available. Now, today is not like the 60s. I mean, you didn't have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Heck, you didn't even have cell phones. You know, so it's important that, that all of us here just keep, you know, kind of stay in our swimming lanes. What is it that we want to do? It's to get the vote out, make sure that, that the Hispanic vote gets out, the African-American vote gets out, the Asian-American vote gets out, everybody. That, that's, that's the role. But you've got to connect. 
And that's, that's I, I, I what would, I think. I would reverse the question a little bit in Texas. I think all of us ought to be embarrassed that we have such low oh. voter participation Absolutely. levels, particularly because there are only four states in the country that are predominantly minority. We're the fourth. First was Hawaii. Second, New Mexico. was not a black thing. Third was California. We are the fourth. Now, something's wrong when our levels are so much lower. But the real question, I think, ought to be, have we done things in Texas to make it more difficult for people to vote? We're already at the bottom. And have we done things to make it more difficult for people to vote? You know, we've got, look, if people want to vote, I, I believe, aside from the, the online and all that stuff, let, let's forget about that. Let's kind of go back. I mean, I don't know a whole lot of folks that, you know, uh, that, in, that have more than two weeks to vote at different mobile voting sites, different locations throughout a community, whether it's a, a school, a church, whatever. You know, we're, we're given two weeks. So can you give more? Absolutely. Well, will that increase voter participation? I don't know. But we've already got two weeks plus election day to go vote. And, and I think when, when that was implemented, there was, you know, we're going we're gonna to get a bigger voter participation. Well, today, a little bit, about 50% of all votes that are cast for an election are done during the early vote. And, but the, I don't, I have, at least in Cameron, I haven't seen the numbers go up significantly. They're about the same. I mean, your, 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 your voting ethic is going to stay the same. And the, the generational gap that I spoke to about a few minutes ago, there is a generational gap between, you know, first and second time voters and their parents. There, there's a gap there. And I kind, of, I kind of equated to this, that if, if, if your parents were, were, were religious about going to church every Saturday or Sunday, there's a strong likelihood that you're going to go to church. If they did not go to church, there's a strong likelihood that you're not going to go to church. You, you, don't, you don't grow up in that environment. The same thing goes for voting. If, if as me as, as a youngster coming up and it saw, if I saw my dad and mom going to vote every single election, that kind of gives me the, the impetus to go and, and develop that voting ethic. But if I never saw my parents vote, they never talked about voting, I'm going to grow up that way. I'm not going to go vote. It's not important. So I think what, what we're trying to do in, in our office is to go out and reach out to those first and second time voters mm -hmm. by going out to college campuses, which we've done, speaking to 50, 60, 70 students. You know, you take one vote at a time and speaking to them and say, hey, if anybody wants to get anything done, they go to the school system. If you want to do recycling, if you want to do uh, whatever you want to do, if you take it to those kids in school, they take it home to their parents. And this is what I want to do with voting, you know, get these young adults, first, second, third time potential voters to get them engaged, get them excited. But right now, I think you're right. When, when you have somebody that, that's speaking negative and, and rhetoric and stuff without really knowing all the facts about, you know, the, 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 the impact that, that our Mexican relations have with Texas, you know, it, you know that it, it's the economy. Somebody said that's some, it's the economy, somebody. Uh, the same thing. So part of part of our message is to go out and, and get students engaged and ask them the ask them the hard question: Why is it that you're not voting? And I think it's trust, cynicism, and you're right; they just don't care. Let me defend uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick just for a moment. And I think what he was suggesting is that in Texas today we have a situation where people vote, and if they don't vote, it's not because of some of these. Uh, impediments that you're referring to, right? If they don't vote, it's because like voter ID. Well, well, and let's get to that. I want to touch on that point too. But it's because we don't have candidates that are truly uh, <coughs> interesting to the voter electorate, right? So he's just saying, look, we've eliminated most of these barriers. We've eliminated the race obligations, the poll taxes, the property taxes. You can vote in Texas. You've got two weeks to do this, and then on election day, if you're not going to the polls, it's because you've chosen not to because you're either disengaged or you're not interested in any of the candidates. I think that's a very real point that he's making. Now, I know that the senator would suggest, well, there are existing impediments in place that, that cause that resistance. But I don't think that's what's driving the lack of voting participation in Texas. I think what's driving the lack of voting participation in Texas is two things. One, there's this there's fundamental issue where we have a very disparate population where you've got very far right and very far left. The way that the districts are drawn now you're either all Republican or all Democrat. So we end up in uh, Texas, which is a very solidly red state. 
So if you're a Democrat on a statewide basis, you know that your primary vote is not going to be particularly relevant because it's going to be determined by Republicans in their primary vote, right? And if you're a Republican, you know that you're going to win and your candidates in your mind are all rel relatively the same, so why go out and vote? So what that leaves is a very distilled component of the Republican Party primary voter uh, that happens to be of a more strident tone, much more of a libertarian-minded, uh, further to the right, and that's where we end up. And that only creates more impetus for folks not to vote because we elect these candidates who are very, very conservative, or sometimes uh, more conservative outside the mainstream, and that alienates folks that would otherwise come to the polls. Now, to touch on your argument that we do have a voter identification law, that it's one of the strongest in the country, we, 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 I believe, as a Republican, and I think most Republicans would agree, that we do have to balance the, the, the need to bring people to the polls uh, with this concern about fraud. And the, the, the common mantra from the other side is there is no fraud. There's never been a lawsuit, there's never been a case. Well, I served on the Citizens Elections Advisory Committee in Dallas County, and I can tell you, just from one polling station, we had a, two volumes uh, of, of things that went awry on voting day that related to fraud. Uh, and so we do have an issue with fraud in Texas. There is a concern about that. Voter identification is merely meant to make sure that the ballot is, is delivered in a way that is um, in adherence to the existing rule of law. It's not asking for much. Look, having a voter identification, uh, you need that to rent a car and to get on an airplane and to get a tattoo or to get your ears pierced. Why not uh, to exercise the franchise? And so I don't think it's asking too much. I know the courts have suggested recently that uh, our law needs to be addressed. They didn't say it was unconstitutional, as many would, would argue. They just said that the way it's drawn, it needs to be uh, revised to expand the ways the, the numbers of identification, the types of identification. Like, like a student ID. Right, right. Of course, there's no effort to do any of that well, during a legislature. Well, but, but, but I think there will be. <laughs> We're running out of time, so I want to get one more question in. So I, but I do want to give you a chance to respond. You know, I, I, it's clearly a modern-day poll tax, and I think that opinion is well worth reading. The real issue is, if people honestly believe it was an issue of eliminating fraud, well, why wouldn't Texas do things like Oregon and California did to do automatic registration. Why wouldn't we simply put more of it online? Why wouldn't we show online in an easy, transparent way who voted and who didn't vote? I mean, I wouldn't go as far as some South American countries do so that if you don't vote, you pay a little minor $1 penalty and encourages more people to turn out. If you honestly believe in a democracy, and I think all of us do, democracies work better when a maximum number of people participate. Now, it may mean that some of us won't win, but that's okay. Uh, look, I see it from both sides. I mean, when Jesse Jackson ran, you know, there were a lot of people who were starting a career like me who were worried. That was a high turnout. Would I make it? But that's not the way uh, that we ought to look at it. We ought to look at that model that Oregon and California have done. We ought to look at other things that may be unique to Texas to encourage more people to participate. We ought to be embarrassed that so few people are participating in this state. We talked about 2016, but I want to talk about 2018, because we know that Latinos and minorities turn out in much bigger numbers in a presidential year, and then we have a gubernatorial election, and turnout is terrible. You know, looking back at 2014, Governor Abbott you know, won a big portion of the Latino vote, but it was also a very low voter turnout election. What is it going to take to get Latinos out to vote in 2018 and in any non-presidential year? I mean, is it going to take a Joaquin or Julian Castro to run for office? What, why, how can we get Hispanics to the vote when it's not a presidential year? I think it takes, um, it takes all, all hands on deck. It's not just, uh, it's, it's connect, bottom line, it's connection to the voters. Hillary showed us very well in San Antonio this week uh, when they said, yo, uh, I'm with Hillary, she said, yo, yo soy tu Hillary, I am your Hillary. She made that connection. Um, she has a history in Texas of, of being here and people remember that. But we also have younger, 33% of the Latino vote in Texas is between the ages of 18 and, and 29. It doesn't matter if they're Latino or any other race or ethnicity, that segment is always the hardest and, 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 and the leading indicator of whether or not they're gonna vote. So um, it, it means reaching out and connecting in a cultural way 
in a personal way, um, whether we're at the Hillary level or whether we're at the Celia level. So I, I, put, I put the burden on all of us who are on the ballot and who are putting campaigns and resources together to not overlook the Latino vote. I've been involved in so many campaigns where we, we only have so much money. Okay, well, what's our target universe? Well, 50 and over, everybody else, you're on your own. So it's been a self-fulfilling prophecy that if the Latinos are not voting, it's because we haven't been asking them. We haven't been spending the resources on them. So perhaps we're getting to such a demographic point now that, that you have to spend the resources to reach out to them, and we will be thoughtful about doing that and connecting with them as personal as possible. We were at an event last night, and a comment was made, it's going to take listening to you all. It's going to take listening to Hispanics. It's going to take money. It's going to take uh, some strong candidates. And it's going to take some anger. You know, with all due respect to Donald Trump, I, I think he's going to bring some Hispanic uh, votes out. I'm not all that sure conventional wisdom would have been. It would be Hillary Clinton and, uh, and Bush. I don't know if that'll happen now. I mean, I've been saying it for the longest, but, you know, this is a little different from when my brother, 999, was running. I mean, that was fly-by-night operation, but, you know, he didn't have the resources that you have on the other side, but look, in California... May your words not be prophetic, <laughs> please. In California, they did something sort of unique. Strong Hispanic population, happens to be a Democratic state now, but the top two vote-getters have to run. Now, my initial reaction would be against that, because I don't want to have to run uh, just for the heck of it, but if that helps bring more people out, that's a new experiment in California. So the way our districts have been gerrymandered, you'd probably have two Democrats in my district. You know, since it's 90% minority now. I mean, they were trying to help me. <laughs> it, it, every, they said, why are you complaining, Senator Ellis? Your district's 90% minority. Of course, my response in federal court was, I don't want to go on the Senate floor talking to my damn self. That's why I don't want the district 90% minority. But if you had two people having to run every time, that might force a greater turnout. But look, you cannot underestimate, I'll be quiet with this, the significance of money. I mean, you can't knock on every door with 27 million people mm -hmm. in Texas. You are in Houston or Harris County, Dallas. I mean, the bigger the district, the more significant money becomes. And with that Supreme Court ruling, even if it's a nonpartisan race, people with money get to go have an inordinate amount of influence on the process. 2018. We must by then have passed a comprehensive immigration reform, whether it be a Democrat, whether it be a Republican. And we can no longer be asking Hispanics to participate when, on the one hand, some of the Republican candidates, some Democrats too, but are insulting the, the, the new Americans, insulting our family members, and then asking for their votes, or it, with their vocabulary, or insulting by saying, I will pass an immigration reform in my first 100 days, in my first year, et cetera, and then not putting the political capital into passing immigration reform. So both parties have failed this very, very important group. And people say, oh, no, well, Hispanics, they're interested in the poll show, they're interested in, in, in jobs, and they're in the economy, and they're in education, health, just like the rest of us, we're all the same. Nonsense. Of course we're interested in those as, as very, very important issues. But, if, but the filter is, my, mi familia. The filter is how you're treating those who are the new Americans, the new immigrants. So, uh, 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 Democrats get dragged together and really spend your capital instead of telling you that you're going to do it because we do remember, and the last immigration reform was passed by, by a Republican. Or Republicans get your act together and let's pass it and we will have all kinds of, uh, of wonderful uh, relationships with the Hispanics for, for many years. Let me go back to Juan's earlier point and he mentions how do we get voters out? We give them interesting candidates. In 2018, I think you're looking at two candidates that can be very interesting. One, uh, George P. Bush, of course. Now, truly a Hispanic, even though the last name is Bush, I think everyone recognizes and identifies him as Hispanic. But there's someone else that I think is even more interesting. And this is a person that is really kind of doing this um, over the course of the last few years. And she is simply, I think, uh, the future of the party. And that Thank is you. Eva. <laughs> oh, you're so <laughs> Eva, Eva Guzman. Uh, Eva Guzman, the Supreme Court Justice. Uh, she's uh, a fascinating, has a fascinating story. 
uh, Latina. She comes from uh, the Mexicano uh, uh, community. She has, she's articulate, she's smart, she, she says the right things. She's very conservative, and so she identifies with conservatives and yet is also a true blue Latina, right? So, or true red, I should say. Uh, true, <laughs> red, <laughs> true red Latina. I, I think you put someone like those two individuals at the top of the ticket, governor, lieutenant governor, not that they're gonna run against the current, uh, but if there, was open, if there were openings, I think in that instance, uh, you do galvanize the young Hispanic vote. You do galvanize people who had never voted before to say, this person's interesting to me. This person shares my heritage. This person shares my identity. And I'm going to get out there, much like Obama did for the African-American community. Now, the African-American community historically has voted very strongly. Uh, but when Obama came on the scene, I mean, my goodness, I mean, the, the numbers really expanded. It's because he uh, was, was a person that uh, the African-American community can identify with, be proud of. Uh, and, and really energize them. We need our, our Obama. We need a Hispanic Obama. Oh, Hispanic Obama, <laughs> right. I, I just want to make the point that issues do matter. Uh, look, sure. all, with all due respect, in, in your party, I mean, you can run someone that looks like me, but if they don't speak to issues that matter uh, to people, you don't have Hispanic candidates to speak to issues that matter to Latinos, in my judgment, you won't get to vote. At the end of the day, by and large, people tend to vote that interest. Well, there's, a, there's a debate lies, right? Your idea, your idea of what resonates with the Hispanic community might be different than my idea, right? I believe in self-reliance and making sure we've got a, a good ecosystem, economic ecosystem to create more high-paying jobs. You might say we need universal health care. I mean, I disagree with that. You disagree with what I say. Uh, but that's the debate that we would have. Uh, but we don't have the voice to give a voice to that argument. Right? I think it puts us on the same wavelength. What I'm saying is, regardless of someone's ethnicity, mm -hmm. color, gender, orientation, by and large at the end of the day, early on in terms of entertainment, I like Trump as an example. That's one factor. But at the end of the day, when those issues are clear, people tend to vote on issues that they think matter. But, but I guess my point is an elderly Anglo individual would not likely have the kind of credibility in the Latino community as a young Latina female who comes from their community. It's just, it's just given more credibility and they listen to the message. And I think the message, once we get to that point, does resonate. But unless we've got the voice to give that message, we, we, it's a non-starter. So it's clearly both. So if right, it right. is someone from a given community <laughs> right. that speaks to issues that resonate right. with that right. community. Uh, absolutely. I think we agree. Here yeah. we go. You know, I think, uh, uh, I think it's important <laughs> to note that I think we, we may be focusing too much on, 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 the, on the messenger and not the message. Uh, and and I, think, I think, you know, like me running in Cameron as a Republican, it was, it was somewhat unique. I mean, you know, uh, and it was because there was a message there. And, I, and as I prefaced earlier in our, in our, in our, in our discussion, I think people, I think there, there's validity to what all, all of y'all are saying. That particular voter has to, you know, you have to resonate with that candidate. It does, you don't have to be an Hispanic or, or, or an African American to generate and to promote a good message that's gonna resonate with, with, with a voter. Uh, is, is it possible for, 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 a, for, an, for an African American to win in a Hispanic neighborhood if the message resonates with those voters, I think it is. Easy. You know? And, Easy and, in Dallas-Fort Worth. Yeah, and, and if, if you have a, you know, can a Hispanic win in, in, a, in an Anglo environment? If it's the message, yes. And I think it goes to, 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 to how you're gonna resonate that message. You have a Republican winning three times in Cameron County in a county that's 75% plus Democrat, three times. So the message resonated, and Hispanic, yes, Cameron, but, but you know, the, uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, the, the way the, the, the politics and the partisanship is, that outweighs, to me, the way I'm seeing it, the ethnicity of a candidate. You know, and, and I wish everybody just run at large. You know, I mean, everybody just, you know, no, there's no party affiliation. You, you kind of run, you know, based on principle, based on message, based on, on this, because I mean, I, I just, you know, what, what I'm hearing from, from people is that I don't want to be identified uh, as who I am by who I vote for. Because it's, it's very fluid. I mean, one day you're going to vote for a Democrat, one day you're going to vote for a Republican. You know, you got back and forth on, on a ballot. I mean, you know, not every single person on, on, the, on the D side is, may, may or may not be good, and not everybody person on the R side may or may not be good. You know, but people, are, what you're seeing, at least in Cameron, uh, is, you know, people are deliberately choosing who they want to vote for. 
And, and then that's, and that's, and to me, that's because the, the candidate actually resonated and connected with all walks of life in, in that particular county. Would you agree the money issue does oh, make it more different? You know, of course, in your case, they knew you. Oh, I mean, yeah, you, well. You, they, they knew you, and I, I'm assuming you didn't change much. You, you, you're the person that they knew. I'm the same person, yeah, but I didn't have a whole lot of money. It's, it's kind of hard to raise money in, in, but you had the credibility in, in that environment. Because you, you'd been in, and they Well, and you, they you know, you, you kind of do other things. I mean, candidates do what they got to do to win. I mean, I, I would stand on street corners by myself with a sign, and I got a lot of, you know, a lot of howdies, a lot of one-finger howdies, and, and I got all kinds of good stuff, you know. But but I, I but I think it, it again it, it goes back. I think you kind of touched on it. It goes back to to connecting with that grassroots, with that door-to-door. I knocked on a lot of doors too, you know, and you know when I was early on. But yeah, my, unfortunately, money does generate because I mean you cannot knock on you know on, on 10 million households or 3 million households if you're running statewide. So but now with social media, that's basically free. You know, uh, but then you got to look at, at, at the Hispanic community. How many within the Hispanic community that are of voting age have access to internet in some of the rural areas? Have access to you know to Facebook? Have you know have access to what they call la face uh, in, in Spanish? You know, how many of them have that type of access? When I think I saw Senator uh, Rodriguez and I saw the Senator, good friend, and El Paso, I think is the one when I was a press account where because you know what our uh, driver responsibility program. We knocked, I don't know, Senator, a good, I think I read it was close to, you know, half a million people knocked off the roads. And if that's the easiest way, you know, I was walking last night, I didn't have my ID. You know, now I'm in Austin, I don't know if I'd go do it if I was in, in, in Dallas, they may know me here. But I mean, are there things we could do uh, in using technology, using the law to make it easier? I mean, am, am I right? Are we all a little embarrassed when they say, hey, Texas, you're at the bottom on voting. I'm just a little, I mean, I'd like to stay in, but I'm kind of embarrassed with so few people putting me in. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I There's agree. no mandate. You know, I, I, I think there is some, 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 there's a lot of concern. And yes, it's embarrassment. Uh, but again, I, I, I go back to what, and I, my compliments to, to, to the legislature and trying to continue to, to outreach and reach out to, to, the, to the voting constituency by trying to make it you know, somewhat easier, trying to facilitate. But again, I mean, you know, you've got second or third world countries that their voter participation is much higher and they're only voting one day. And so here we, 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 we give folks the opportunity to vote for two weeks plus election day plus all kinds of locations. Uh, and yet we, we just can't seem to do that. And I think it goes back to what we talked about early on. I think at the end of the day, I think we're all going to agree on one thing. It's up to the candidate to really get that message out. They got to appeal to the, to the constituency. They got to be attractive. And it's not just the messenger. It's the message. I think with that, we're going to go ahead and open it to Q&A from the audience. We're running a little bit out of time, but um, go ahead, Sharon. And witnessed it on the local level our school district is primarily Hispanic and we've never had an Hispanic school board member and what I've seen repeatedly is wonderful Hispanic candidates running and being crushed they get the message out but they're still crushed because what we have is a voting machine of Caucasians that are holding the power so I'm still here wondering what does it take to, to me it's not about the candidate. I've seen it happen locally that it's excellent candidates, excellent messages, but they're being crushed. So I still have the question. To me the question is are we ready to share the power? Are that, we ready to share the power? That's an excellent question and I think you can have an, an outstanding um, uh, Latino or Latina <clears throat> who has a wonderful record in the community, and if they don't have the campaign resources, i.e. a budget, to reach out and do three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten mailers, um, TV ads, uh, other social media types of advertising, um, to, to run a robust, aggressive campaign, to reach beyond the, the Anglo 50 and over. It costs money. I mean, I've raised the money. I've, 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 worked, I've worked through this with my staff. It's, it's hard. When you only have so much money, you go with the low propensity, the high propensity voter. 
Um, so it, it's going to change over time, but you have to have the complete package. You have to have experience. You have to have a good candidate, and you have to have the resources to say, I'm not going to go with the baby universe. I'm going to go with the robust universe so that I can get more turnout. And it all, in my mind, in my experience, it's come down to money. Um, my question is, uh, has to do with early voting. And um, this is something that maybe the elected officials up there have learned since they got elected, is if you can handle something administratively, rather than going and trying to pass a bill one way or another, it's a lot easier to get something done. But we're talking about getting our people out to vote, and we have early vote. Is there a way to ensure that there are two Saturdays or two weekends in that period to where everybody can come out to vote? The issue seems to be that they're politicized the elections. When one party sees that there's a certain technique of voting, like early voting, that's bringing in a lot of numbers for the other party, you're going to want to mess with that and reduce the amount of time, reduce the amount of, I guess, any kind of uh, exposure you have to losing votes. So to our Secretary of State, what would, could, is that something we can do to ensure that there are the weekends? Because last time there was a weekend cut off and it was like, there was only one Saturday. And a lot of people, my polling is the other direction and I have to vote early. But if you limit the number of, of days, you're in fact um, impacting the election. Well, let me, let me just briefly talk. You know, I think that if, if I remember my, my, my county judge days, the county commission uh, sets those locations and maybe those, those times. I mean, th there is, there is some, some, some mandatory times. Uh, but I think that would be up to the, to the local commission uh, to, to, let's say, open it up. But it comes about down to money. I mean, there, there's limited resources when it comes. You know, the elections is, is one of those, you know, those departments in county government where there's no romance in it. You know, it's just an election department. It's like having an IT department. You know, you, you, don't, you don't know what you've got until, mm -hmm. you know, you turn on the switch and nothing turns on. Uh, but I think you need to go down to the, to the, local, to the local counties <laughs> and, and emphasize that with them uh, to, have it, to have it open it up. You know, at least in, in Cameron, it was always discussion, where are you going to have these locations? You've got to have them, you know, within the precinct, within, within the, 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 the center of the county. And it's always, do you want to have it at a Catholic school on the east side of Brownsville? Because that's where the majority of, of Democrats are, uh, at least in, in, in Cameron. That's where they're all at. So it, it, even at that level, it becomes very, very, you know, politicized. But I think you reach out to your, the local county commissioners and, and let them know that, you know, you want to have two weekends, you want to have after five. I mean, a lot of these polling locations are open till seven o'clock. Uh, early vote, they open up at nine and then they go to, and they go to, they go to 7 p.m. That's on the local level then. Well, but you know, all politics is local, and you know, but and, you know, the, the, these local levels, it is what transcends into state and federal politics. I mean, that's, that's where it is. I mean, if you want to vote for at a, at a, state, of, at a state official, it, it's that county election office that is running that election, coupled with, you know, you know, county commission races or county judge or district clerk or whatever. If you're asking for a guaranteed two Saturdays, I think that is something that the legis legislature could address. Um, I'd be in favor of that. I mean, I think historically we've had two Saturdays. This year was, was unique, and I think we cut one off. But uh, having two Saturdays, I think, makes perfect sense to me. One less limitation that the senator would be so upset about. Will you be co-sponsoring a bill next session? Gladly. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in. And the, the other one, look, we're we celebrating, I guess we're commiserating, uh, the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, look, we wouldn't be having this discussion if that bill that Lyndon Johnson passed for the nation. Barbara Jordan added, under the bilingual amendment, added Texas uh, to it and a lot of other places. I mean, it's just, it's just really sad that we've come full circle uh, and now states can make those changes uh, because they decide to do it on a political whim. On the first question, most people don't give up power willingly. You got to run. I mean, you got to take it. I mean, hey, I've lived long enough. Uh, I've been in this game long enough now. I'm a little more interested in my legacy than winning the next election. But the real tragedy is most of these decisions end up being made by people who are put in a certain position to protect a certain group, and that and that is a that's a real a real tragedy. I hope in the next Congress they can find a way to do what Democrats and Republicans historically have done: uh, realize the significance of LBJ and Martin Luther King's and Cesar Chavez's Voting Rights Act, and Texas ought to be up. Next question: What format and language should voter education materials be for the Hispanic audience? English and Spanish. What also what format? Uh, well, you can go to votetexas.gov. It, it, it gives you the whole, 
outline of you know, how he registered to vote. But that hasn't seemed to be, in terms of unlocking the Hispanic vote, that hasn't seemed to be successful. So what other ideas do you think would hit to be more successful to the Hispanic audience? You know, I, I'm going to go back. I, I, I still think that the, the, the fundamental responsibility of voter outreach and voter participation is up to the candidates themselves that are running. You know, our role is to provide the information in the languages that, that are prevalent, which is English and Spanish, uh, provide that information that's readily online. And I go back to the question, I mean, have we, has anyone really done a study as to, uh, on, on the Latino, Hispanic, you know, how many really have access to online Fastest growing uh, group. And, and fastest growing group. You know, yes. and, and do they have that? And so Facebook is going like wild. Yeah, yeah. so we're trying, you know, at the SOS office, I mean, we really started getting aggressive with, with, a, with, with our, our Facebook page. You know, we're posting stuff every day with Twitter, with Instagram. We're doing everything that we believe we need to be. Is there more? Absolutely. If, so, if we're looking at structural things that Secretary Cascos has control over, um, his staff was in support of, well, they couldn't say they were in support of, but they, they said, we can do this, online voter registration. Um, if we look at the Latino vote, again, they are young. They are, 33% of them are between 18 and 29. So First they have, numbers. they, um, I don't know about you, but I don't know any person in that age who has a book of stamps in their purse. <laughs> so they're not gonna go to his website and print out a piece of paper and fill it out and mail it in. So again, we go back to structural things. You know, if, if, if we can do um, a same-day driver's license, why can't we do same-day voter registration? So these are, for a young mobile voter who moved here from LA or from Harris County to South Austin, um, they wake up in the middle of early voting and say, damn, I didn't, I didn't change my voter registration. These are, these are small, simple barriers that we can overcome. And when we have a lieutenant governor who, says, who suggests that we can't overcome them, we are doing a disservice to the American heroes who took the, bull, the, the hoses and the dogs of Bull Connor and who gave up their life for the right to vote. Okay, um, I teach young college students about American government and Texas government. And what I find is fundamentally the problem that I think you're not all really addressing is they don't trust the system. They are alienated from the system. They are angry at the system. It's not addressing their issues like student loan debt and income inequality. And most fundamentally, I think a lot of them believe their vote doesn't matter at all and that money controls the entire political system. So my question to you is, how do you really address the issues of young people and particularly, I mean, which is mostly young Hispanics, that they fundamentally are alienated from the system? And you know, I mean, how about public financing of elections so that they would actually feel that their vote matters? Well, I can tell you that, that you're absolutely right. Uh, and thank you for your public service. Um, when, when I was speaking at one of the universities, I asked the question of the student body you know, who did not vote. And there was, I mean, there, there was a half did not vote for various reasons. And I said, so give, give me a reason. The number one reason was, was that of trust. And, and, uh, and again, I think you go back to the candidate that's, you, you gotta engage these, you know, these young adults. Uh, you know, public finance, that's beyond my, that, that's above my pay grade. But, uh, but I, I'm thinking that we, we have to engage. And so the, the question that I posed to this student was, okay, so you don't trust anything and everything. So that means you're gonna go for the next 50, 60 years and not vote simply because you don't trust. That's why, that's why I indicated to, to this student, cast a blank ballot. At least you get your number, you actually did vote. And in time, if you have enough blank ballots out there, if you've got, you know, I won an election in 2010 by 69 votes. So every vote does count. And so if, if, if I'm there and there's 200 blank ballots, that means there's 200 people out there that had took the time to go vote, but they were so disenfranchised with all the candidates that they didn't bother to cast a vote for any particular individual. So you're right, but it's gonna take people like yourself and people in the audience and people up here to convey that message. And at the end of the day, it's up to the candidate as an individual to regain that trust. And I said earlier, it, it's, it's, it's not so much 
the, 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 the messenger, but, it, but it's the message. And maybe it's a combination of the two. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to everyone for coming by. Let's you know what? Our let's, 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 let's take his question. Revolt. Revolt. So I want to know, I want to know, I heard both of you speak to how low turnout is related to voter disinterest, principally because of the way that you district uh, um, according to the Voting Rights Act, right? So the way that we draw the lines really only increases the minority density, right? So you're only adding power to minority districts. And as a result, these districts are principally uncompetitive. So in the general election, we know if it's going to be a D or an R. So the real election is all about the primary. Because of this specific issue, would you support repealing the Voting Rights Act to remedy that aspect of the politics? And if so, would, what protections would you put in place to protect the right to vote? Because I think this is the principal reason the Voting Rights Act paradoxically may be the reason why we have uncompetitive elections in this country. Oh, I, think you, I think you read it the wrong way. The Voting Rights Act is the principal reason that we have diversity in American politics. Under the old system, <laughs> under the old system, there are all kinds of slick schemes, you know, to run for a state rep seat, you run in a congressional district. That would mean, by today's numbers, to represent a district of 200, 220,000, you'd run in a congressional seat of 650,000. Uh, so this the system was designed so people could stay in power. But look, in the old days, my predecessors, Barbara Jordan and Craig Washington, African-Americans in the state Senate, they had to fight with their Democratic counterparts because in the old days, they would try to crack the Latino and the African-American vote. You want some, but not too many. Uh, and then in, the, in this generation, I have to argue respectfully uh, but strongly with my colleagues because they want to pack it. And they'll say, oh, oh no, it has nothing to do uh, with race. Uh, it, it has everything to do with, with party. I would say the blacks and Hispanics have a right to decide which party they want to vote in, just like everybody else. So they want to go pack it in there. So it, it really is a distinction. We, we've gotten to where we are because of the Voting Rights Act. But you couldn't, under preclearance, you couldn't go make changes without some independent entity <coughs> looking at it and saying, does it disenfranchise a certain group in that? And that's a tough thing to do. Look, the Secretary of State uh, is appointed by the governor, serves at the will of the governor. And in part is the chief liaison with commerce and with uh, members of the legislature, particularly the Senate in the old days. Now it's kind of both. But when you're in that position, you, you, you represent the governor whether it's a Democrat or Republican. I think we ought to try to take some of the partisanship out of the uh, electoral process. Your voter registrars uh, are, are the appraisal folks on the local level. I think our responsibility ought to be more than to just handle the elections. We ought to be figuring out a way to make it as easy for people to participate. Why not have open discussion? In Brazil, you get like a parking ticket. You pay a buck if you don't vote. I just think there's structural things we could do. Even when you had contested primaries, Texas was still at the bottom in terms of the number of people who turned out to vote. Let me address it, then we can go. In my district, we are 97% Anglo in the Republican Party primary. I'm Hispanic with an unpronounceable last name. It's Vialba. And yet, I was able to win. I don't think race should have an impact on whether or not we, we have the, the bipartisanship that you're referring to, right? Uh, merely because we have communities that need to be represented, African-American or Hispanic or Anglo, shouldn't be scrapped merely because we, you have the perception that those individuals vote in block to, uh, for one side or the other. I think if you're a good candidate and you're Anglo, you can win in an African-American candidate. If you're a good candidate and you're Hispanic, you can win in an Anglo, in an Anglo district. So uh, no, I would not be in favor of, of, of Well, thank you very thank much you. to our panelists for being here today.